We're about to meet in this lesson the terrible trio in Revelation chapters 12 and 13. Revelation 12 and 13 introduces us to the three key characters in the drama of the last half of the tribulation period. We see Satan the dragon, the false Christ that we call the Antichrist, and the false prophet. So these three are key in the drama in which is going to unfold today. As you all know, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit compose the Holy Trinity. It's something that we really don't understand, but we can clearly see from Scripture. The New Testament teaches clearly that there is God the Father, there is Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, and we have the Holy Spirit of God who indwells the hearts of believers in our age. And we don't understand it, but we believe it, even though the word Trinity is never used in the New Testament. And as we're going to find out, Satan is the great deceiver, and he's the great imitator. And he has an evil, false trinity. And we see them in these two chapters. We have Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. Now, as we go through these two chapters, and as we really work our way through the entire book, I want you to see Satan very clearly, what he is and what he does. Uh, Dr. Quartz preached a sermon uh, many years ago, about 16 years ago, and his one of his uh, outlines was what Satan's job description was. And first of all, he is the accuser. We're going to talk about him tonight being the accuser of the brethren, and he incriminates God's pardon. He makes us doubt the fact that God has pardoned us by accusing us day and night. Secondly, he's the persecutor. He intimidates God's people. He continually persecutes and oppresses us. Thirdly, he's the usurper. He invalidates God's place. That's what he wanted, was he thought that he should be reigning as God. And fourth, he's the deceiver. He imitates God's power. We're going to see this We've seen this throughout the, the, the Bible, and we're going to see it in these two chapters that a couple of the uh, miracles that the two witnesses uh, perform, at least one of them with fire, is going to be duplicated by the false prophet. So Satan has always been an imitator. He's always been a deceiver. And on top of all of that, Jesus called him a liar and the father of all lies, and he is a murderer. So we really do need to see him as he is and know what his motives are and know what his weapons are so that we can be successful against him. Well, let's, let's delve into chapters 12 and 13 and let's take a look at the terrible trio. Uh, these, these events are special. They're going to be really significant to God's people at that time, people who are suffering through the tribulation that have come to know Jesus after the rapture of the church. But this can encourage us and encourage saints during any age because Satan is the great enemy of the church. And when we see what he's going to do in the tribulation period, it's very important that we can glean some truth from that as well. So let's take a look at Revelation chapter 12. There are two wonders in heaven in these first six verses. Let's take a look at verses one through six. 
Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as he was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Now there is so much in these first six verses. First of all, the first wonder in heaven is a woman giving birth to a son. And there's been a lot of conjecture about who this woman might be. And this woman uh, is probably the church, but I do not believe that. I believe that this woman clothed with the son can't be the church because Jesus gave birth to the church not the other way around, because this woman gives birth to a male child that we're going to absolutely know that is Jesus Christ himself. So this woman giving birth to a son must be Israel. If you go back to Genesis 37, 9 and 10, uh, we see that this is a dream that Joseph had. Remember the sun, the moon, and the stars bow down to him? And he's really talking about what happened whenever God took Joseph to Egypt. God wanted Joseph in Egypt so that then he could then save his family. And that is where the family of Abraham became the nation of Israel. And so we're talking about Israel here, Joseph's dream, the woman is Israel ready to give birth. Now, Israel is often compared to a woman. If you read Isaiah 54, 5, or Isaiah 66, 7, Jeremiah 3, 6 through 10, and two passages in Micah, Micah 4, 10, and Micah 5, 2 and 3, you'll see that Israel is compared to a woman. So this is really in line with what the rest of scripture teaches. You'll also notice even in this book that women are symbols for several things. In this passage, uh, the woman is a symbol for Israel. We saw the woman Jezebel, who, as we said at that time in chapters 2 and 3, probably was not a real woman named Jezebel. There was probably a woman, but this is a symbol for false doctrine in Revelation 2.20. We see in chapter 17 that there is a great harlot, and that is a symbol for an apostate world system. And then we see, thankfully, in chapter 19, starting with verse 7 and following, that the church is seen as a pure bride. So it's really no surprise that this woman is a symbol, and that symbol is of Israel. She's clothed with the sun, moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 uh, stars. And she is in pain in childbirth, in labor. And we can see that Jesus came through Israel, and we can also see that Israel has been persecuted down through the centuries. There were many people who tried to, to, to destroy Israel before Jesus even came. 
Satan knew the prophecy in Genesis 3.15 that there would be a redeemer. And all through the Old Testament, he tried to destroy the godly line of Jesus. Remember Pharaoh? Pharaoh wanted to kill all the boy babies when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. Haman, in the book of Esther, wanted to destroy all of the Jews. In more modern times, we've seen Hitler and Stalin and Mussolini who hated the Jews and wanted to destroy them. And so it is really no surprise that this woman, Israel, is in labor and in pain. She's been persecuted. But she gives birth. She gives birth to a male child, and that male child in verse 5 is Jesus himself. He came through Israel, and if you read Revelation 19.15 and Psalm 2.9, it's Jesus, the Messiah, who's going to reign with a rule of iron. We'll talk about that when we get to the millennium the 1,000-year reign of Jesus, where he rules with a rod of iron. It'll be a 1,000 years of peace and obedience to him, and this is a prophecy about him. She bore the male child, so it's Israel, the woman, bearing a male child, Jesus. Now, notice this in verse 5. She bore him who was to rule, and her child was caught up to God in his throne. It doesn't make mention of his ministry at all. That's not John's purpose here in writing. First of all, John's purpose is the fact that the woman was persecuted and then the child was wanting was, uh, was one that uh, is wanted to be killed by Satan. He was born, even though Satan tried to destroy Israel before he was born. Remember, right after Jesus was born, Herod uh, put out a decree to kill all the boy babies in Bethlehem and the surrounding area. Two years, uh, babies that were two years and younger. Herod wanted to stamp out the male child. uh, Satan was using Herod to try to destroy Jesus. He tried to destroy Jesus throughout, and then he uh, he was outwitted by God. Satan can never overpower God. Satan can never outthink God. Satan can never outmaneuver God. And so we see that he's born, and then he was caught up to the throne of God. So in his birth, he was victorious over Satan, and in his death, burial, and resurrection, and then being caught up to God's throne, he's still victorious over Satan. So she bears a male child. Nothing is mentioned of his ministry. This is all about persecution and Satan trying to get rid of the male child. He was unsuccessful. The male child was born, and then he was caught up to the throne of God. So Satan is defeated in every count. Well, it says here then that the woman fled into the wilderness where she was has a place prepared by God. Now, that's really important when you go back and see the second wonder. Revelation 12, 3, and another sign appeared in heaven. Now, I want to draw your attention to that word sign. We have it in verse 1, now a great sign appeared in heaven. Verse 3, and another sign appeared in heaven. That's the Greek word simeon. And that doesn't mean just, well, we see something going on. That, that is a word that means we see something that's got a real strong meaning behind it. The same word is used in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. 
Anytime I, I teach the book of John, I always make mention of this. And that is, this is the two main theme verses of John. John twenty thirty says, And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The book of John is, the theme is seven miraculous signs that Jesus performed. It showed that he was master over quantity, quality, time, distance, uh, misfortune, death. He is master over all of these. All of the signs that Jesus performed had a deeper meaning behind them. And so John says, truly Jesus did many other signs, but these signs, these have specific meaning. That's the same word that John the Revelator uses here. I'm giving you some signs and these are symbols and these are important because there's some spiritual meaning behind these. Well, verse three says, another sign appeared in heaven, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and 10 horns and seven diadems. That great fiery red dragon is Satan. We've, we learned that in verse nine. He's cast out of heaven. Red is the same color, the same word that we saw the red horse in chapter six. And we said that was death, murder, war. And so this tells his murderous character. It tells the character of Satan. He is a murderer and he brings death. He wants to devour that male child. He tried to destroy the male child. And he's used many people throughout history to destroy the Jews and then to try and destroy Jesus. In verse 4, it says, His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And this is pretty much perhaps talking about the fact that when Satan fell, he was Lucifer. He was a great and powerful angel in heaven. And yet he wanted to be like God. He wanted God's throne and God threw him out and a third of the angels were thrown out with him. So his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven. And so he stood before the woman, before Israel, ready to give birth to devour the child. But you see in verse five, it fast forwards to when the child was caught up to God and his throne. And then verse six fast forwards to the last half of the tribulation period. When the Antichrist desecrates the temple at the midpoint of the tribulation, it is going to be open season on Jews. And we'll talk about that as we go forward in this lesson. It says, Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God and will be taken care of 1260 days or 42 months or three and a half years. Now, many people believe they know where this place is and it's called the city of Petra. It is a very naturally defensed place and many people believe that they know that this is the place where the Jews will be safeguarded by God during the last part of the tribulation period, the last three and a half years. So these are the two wonders. The first wonder is the woman clothed with the sun and then another sign, another wonder appeared in heaven and it's this great 
fiery red dragon who is Satan. Well, there's two more scenes in chapter 12. First, we have war in heaven. Look at verse 7, 7 through 12. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Now we know that Michael has been identified with Israel. He's called the guardian of Israel. You should look up and read Daniel 10, 10 through 21, and also Daniel 12, 1. In Jude 9, it says that, uh, that, Daniel, uh, no, that uh, Michael rather, contended with Satan over the body of Moses. And so Michael is identified with Israel. He's Israel's guardian. And we see in verses 7 through 12 that war breaks out in heaven. Now, that begs the question that many people have struggled with. And many people will come to the conclusion that this was the war in heaven that broke out before Adam and Eve were created and before the Garden of Eden was put in place. I don't believe that. I think this war happens in the middle of the tribulation period, and I will tell you why. Because one of Satan's names is the accuser of the brethren. And it says here in verse 10, For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night. Well, if he was before God day and night, how would he accuse anybody if he was thrown out of heaven before Adam and Eve? before the Garden of Eden, before sin entered the, entered the world. Here's what I believe is happening here in chapter 12 of the book of Revelation. I believe, and I, I believe this because of reading the book of Job. You remember when it says to Job uh, in the book of Job that Job was walking around the earth and presented himself before God. And God said, Job, where you been? He says, I've been walking to and fro around the earth. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, yes, God. And the only reason he worships you is because you've blessed him so much. And if you took away the stuff that he had, he'd curse you. So we see that Satan accused Job while um, after he had been thrown out of heaven in the beginning. Now, Many people, and I want to address this here, I've heard this time and time and time again, that God can't stay, stay in the same presence with sin, that God, God can't be in the presence of sin. I don't believe that's true either. And I believe that comes from the fact when people say that God can't stand to look at sin 
because he turned his back on Jesus when Jesus is on the cross. I think that I know that people know what they mean, but that's not the proper way to articulate that. When Jesus is on the cross, when it says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is simply the time when God placed the sin of the world on Jesus. In a sense, maybe he did turn his back because he placed his sin on his son. But God saw what was happening. God placed the sin of the world on Jesus. But Jesus, being the sinless son of God, he who knew no sin was made sin for us. He had never experienced this. And so all of a sudden, the weight of the sin of the world is placed upon him and he feels forsaken. It doesn't mean that God can't be in the presence of sin because Satan sinned in heaven. He was thrown out of heaven. We see him in heaven again in the book of Job. And Job was probably the first book written in the Old Testament. But it's most likely that this was during the times of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And we see in Revelation 12 that it says here, the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night. It is my opinion that Satan has access to God right now, today, and he accuses you and me before God. It's important to know that. I think of that many, many times when I stumble and fail and I sin and Satan is standing before God saying, God, have you seen what that Jerry Morrison did last week? Did you see how he answered that person that asked him something? Did you see how he reacted in that relationship? Do you know what he was thinking whenever that happened on that Thursday afternoon? He accuses me and he accuses you. And you know why I'm pretty sure that he's the accuser of the brethren today? Because the book of Hebrews says that we have an intercessor and we have an advocate. And that advocate is our high priest, Jesus. If we didn't have Satan accusing us, why would we need God, Jesus, to be our advocate? So I believe that even today, Satan is before the throne of God accusing you and me. He's the accuser of the brethren, but at the middle of the tribulation period, there will be war in heaven. Michael and his angels will fight with Satan and Satan will be thrown out and he will not be allowed back in heaven again. And that's when they break out in song, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come because they defeated Satan. In verse 11, great, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb. Everything, all of our victory is based on the blood of Jesus. His sacrifice is the basis for our salvation. It's not good works. It's not good deeds. It's not good intentions. It's not being a good person. Everything, every way we overcome is by the blood of the lamb 
and by the word of the testimony. It's when people share a word about Jesus, give glory to him, that defeats Satan. Jesus' death defeated Satan. Jesus' resurrection and ascension defeated Satan. And our testimony, our witness about what Jesus did for us overcomes Satan. So there's war in heaven. Michael and his angels are victorious. And Satan, the accuser, no longer has access. He's thrown out. He doesn't much like it. The second scene in this last portion of chapter 12 is Satan's wrath on earth. Look at verse 13. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of, his, of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Well, Satan, it says here in the last part of verse 12, he knows that he has a short time. That's another reason why I don't believe it's before the Garden of Eden. Because now he knows the Bible. He doesn't know everything, but he knows what God has inspired to be written in his word. And he knows when Antichrist desecrates the temple and sets himself up as God, he's got three and a half years left. And at this midpoint of the tribulation period, when he's thrown out of heaven, he knows that he has a short time. So he comes down to the earth being cast out of heaven and he knows his time is short so he persecutes Israel the way she has never been persecuted before because he knows he has a short time. That flood, the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood. That could be a literal flood or it could be just a wave of anti-Semitism. It could be a flood of words, a flood of propaganda, a flood of political nonsense that the Antichrist floods Israel and overcomes them with a wave of anti-Semitism. But God, true to his word, gives the woman two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness. Revelation 12, 14. You'll notice that God delivered Israel from Egypt on eagle's wings in Exodus 19, 4. He cared for the people in the wilderness, the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, as an eagle cares for her young in Deuteronomy 32, 11, and 12. And when Isaiah writes about Israel's return from captivity, it's like mounting up with wings as eagles. Isaiah 40, 31. And so God takes care of this flood. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood. So that is either people or nations or someone coming to the aid of Israel, or it could be it's a literal flood 
where maybe Satan literally floods with water, the place where Israel has been kept safe, and God opens up the earth and swallows up all of this water. And the dragon is enraged, and if he can't get Israel, who's protected in the city, which may be Petra, he goes after everybody else who's a believer in Jesus. So it is open season on believers during the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. Now, you know that Satan has a lot of his colleagues, a lot of the fallen angels that will be with him. And if we just took, and, and, and I like to look at this in two different ways. Number one, you could look at, at it as, you know, we saw around the throne not too long ago, we saw the uh, 10,000 times 10,000. And that's plus thousands of thousands. But even 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million. And so if there's only 100 million angels, then 33 plus million fell. And that's who Satan has helping him for the most part. Although we know that Jude verse 6 and 2 Peter 2 verse 4 says that some of these fallen angels have been reserved in chains for judgment. So all of them are not loosed. Some have been confined. But the other way I like to look at this is that if we have, and it appears in Scripture that angels are our protectors, if each person has one guardian angel, there's six billion people on earth right now. And so that means if there are six billion angels... Two billion angels fell. So Satan has a lot of help in doing his bidding. But no matter how much he tries, no matter what schemes he produces, no matter what he desires to do, God is sovereign and God's purposes will be fulfilled. And in this instance, God prepares a place. So we see the woman, the child, and the dragon in chapter 12. We see Satan thrown out of heaven, and then we see the woman persecuted. Remember what Jesus said, when you see the the uh, abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, and that is when the Antichrist slays a sow or a pig on the altar and sets himself up as God, he Jesus says, run don't even go back into your house for a cloak. Woe is to you if you are pregnant. Hopefully you're not pregnant or nursing because this will be a terrible, terrible time that Israel has never undergone before and will never undergo again. And so this is the period talked about when the woman is persecuted because the dragon Satan is thrown out of heaven and he knows his time is short. Well, chapter 13 is about the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth. Let's first of all talk about the beast from the sea in Revelation 13, verses 1 through 10. Then he stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. 
So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Well, some of your translations may say in verse 1, then I stood on the sand of the sea. But the best manuscripts indicate that this is the dragon standing on the sea, on the sand of the sea, not uh, not John. So the sand, the sea is where the beast rises up. This is the beast from the sea, the sea beast. And it's very clear that this is the Antichrist. Now, what does the sea symbolize here? It's one of two things. It's either he's rising from Gentile nations or he's rising out of chaos. We're going to see in Daniel chapter 7 that the same, Daniel has a vision of a beast rising out of the sea. So it may be, and a lot of great world leaders have risen to power out of the realm of chaos. So the Antichrist is either emerging from Gentile nations or emerging from chaos. And you'll notice we saw him riding the white horse in chapter 6. He started as a peacemaker in chapter 6, verse 2. He's going to settle the Arab-Israeli problem. It says in Daniel 9, 27, he's going to sign a peace treaty with Israel. He's going to say, I'm your protector. I'll take care of you. So he's going to settle that peace problem. But then in the middle of the tribulation period, he breaks the covenant. Chapter 13, verse 18 says he's a man, but he's energized by Satan. Chapter 11, verse 7, and chapter 17, verse 8. So he's Satan's man. Satan empowers him and at some point enters in him. So the beast of the sea rises up. He's got seven heads, ten horns, and ten crowns. And you notice here, he mentions beasts, leopard, bear, and lion. And the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and his authority. Here's what the symbols break down. The seven heads are seven mountains. We're going to see that in chapter 17, verse 9. So that tells us what these seven heads are, but we'll develop that more further uh, when we go to chapter 17. The ten horns are ten kingdoms. We see that in Daniel 7, 24 and Revelation 17, 12. And the three animals in chapter 13, verse 2, remind us of the four beasts that Daniel saw in his dream in Daniel 7. Let's turn for a moment to Daniel chapter 7. I think you need to see this. Uh, Daniel 7, now you'll notice that we talk about four world kingdoms when we talk about Daniel's visions, when he interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and when Daniel has a vision. In chapter 2, it's Nebuchadnezzar's dream where he sees the image. In chapter 7, 
Daniel has a vision and they're animals. The difference is chapter two is how man sees these kingdoms. Man sees them as rich and glorious and powerful and wonderful. In chapter seven, it's how God sees these kingdoms. God sees them as cruel and devouring and as savage wild beasts. Daniel 7, verse 2. Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now that could be the Gentile nations and it could be chaos. And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked and there was another like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. And after this I saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong and had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it and it had ten horns. And then he goes on in verse 8 to say, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days were seated. So we talk about the Antichrist here as that little horn in verse 8. He's going to rise up until the Ancient of Days comes and Jesus is going to come. And in verse 11 of Daniel 7, it says, I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. In verse 24 of Daniel 7, and I know this is a lot to take in, but the ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. So here's the important part. John's looking forward and sees uh, a lion, a bear, and a leopard. He's looking forward because those four beasts, and, and we don't mention this fourth beast in Revelation because this is the fourth beast. Now, you have to remember here that the Antichrist represents the kingdom. He's a person, but it's also a kingdom. And when John says in chapter 13, he says, I saw a leopard, bear, and lion. That's the reverse order because Daniel is looking down the corridor of prophecy and he sees the lion, Babylon, the bear, Medo-Persia, and the leopard, Greece. John's looking back into history and sees him in the reverse order. He sees the leopard, the bear, and the lion. So here's what, ha here's what happens. When we study Daniel, we know that there were four great kingdoms, Babylon, 
Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And in the end times, there's going to be a revived Roman Empire. And there will be ten kings or ten rulers or ten kingdoms. It could be ten presidents. When Daniel wrote about kings, he didn't know presidents because in his day, he only knew rulers, kings. But there will be a revived Roman Empire and the Antichrist, that little horn, is going to rise up and take out three of them. And that's going to help him rise into power. And so he's going to take those three out and then he's going to have dominion and he's going to rise to power. And what does this mean in Revelation 13? It's simply that in the revived Roman Empire, in the empire that the Antichrist has dominion over, it has all of the characteristics of Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. His kingdom is going to be strong and swift and ferocious because those animals characterized the kingdoms of Babylon and of Medo-Persia and of Greece. And so the Antichrist is going to be just like that. So all of the characteristics of all of those kingdoms are going to be rolled up into one. Well, what happens next when we see his power, his throne, and his great authority? Well, the next thing that happens, we have four different scenes here in these first 10 verses. We have wonder, verse 3. I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. The world marvels and follows the beast when the deadly head wound is healed. Now, many people believe that this is simply going to be the death of a kingdom, the death of a nation. I don't believe that. And some, some very respectable Bible scholars believe that Satan doesn't have the power to resurrect someone from the dead. I have to disagree with them because I believe that Satan has a lot of power. Now, God must grant him this power. God doesn't have to grant him this power. God can do anything he wants to. But I, I believe that, that this should be literally interpreted as this man, this Antichrist, is going to be mortally wounded with a sword. It says here later on here, was killed with a sword. And so I believe that the Antichrist will be killed. And then probably after three days, we'll be raised again. I simply believe that because Satan is a deceiver and he's an imitator. He's a counterfeiter. So I believe that his man is going to come back to life just like Jesus did after three days. So when he does that, the world is going to wonder and marvel and follow him. I believe that this is literally going to happen in the person of the Antichrist. He will die and be brought back to life. And that ushers in worship. Verse 4, they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worship the beast, saying, who's like him? Who's able to make war with him? Whoa, this guy was raised from the dead. So Satan and the Antichrist are worshipped, and that is what Satan has always wanted. He wants to be worshipped. And this is all going to happen when Satan presents his great masterpiece, Antichrist. In verses 5 and 6, we have words. 
He was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority. And he blasphemes God. He blasphemes everything about God in verse 6. Blasphemes his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. Now, you know, I've said this many times before. We, we've had some people in, in our, just in the short span of the last 50 years, who have been great orators. We've had great speech makers and great deliverers of speeches who have been wonderful. And, and you know who they are down through history. People who can sway crowds. Hitler was one of them. Hitler could sway the crowds. Uh, we've had presidents. President Bill Clinton was a very gifted speaker. Well, I say that to say this. Those men will be pale comparisons to the Antichrist. He will be a gifted speaker because he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. He's going to be energized by Satan, gifted by Satan. And so for that reason, when the church is raptured and all these bad things start happening, he's going to explain everything away. He's going to say, well, the people who are gone, and he's going to have a great explanation for that. The locusts, the earthquakes, the catastrophes, he's going to have a great mouth speaking great things, and he is going to be given this mouth. Notice the operative words here in the last part of this passage. He is given, and in the next section, it was granted to him. That's an application for us. Satan can't do anything without God allowing him to do it. And so you need to re- you need to recognize that because you might think, oh, things are unraveling. Things are spinning out of control. They are not because God is giving Satan the freedom to do this. He is granting Satan the power to do this. The last part is verses 7 through 10 and it's war. So we had wonder, worship, words, and war. And it was granted to him, here again, granted by God, war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. There are some Bible commentators who believe that the Antichrist will have all kinds of opposition the entire time. It'll be a struggle for him. I don't know what they do with this verse because it very clearly says, authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship him except those true believers. Now, I have to make a comment on verse 8, because Bible scholars take this in two different ways. My translation, the New King James says, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So that means Jesus, the Lamb, was slain before the foundation of the world. And then other people read it whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. That, that's that the, from the foundation of the world belongs to the book of life, not to the lamb slain. To me, it really doesn't make any difference because you and I both know God has perfect knowledge. There is no future to him. He is in the ever-present now. And so he knew he elected people before they were ever, ever created and that's another doctrine for another day. But uh, he also knew that Jesus was going to die. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit all agreed before the foundation of the world that Jesus would come and die. And so there's war. And at this time on planet Earth, there's only two kinds of people. Believers who are persecuted by the dragon and the beast 
and unbelievers who worship the beast. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. And every time it says all the earth dwellers, it's unbelievers. So everybody's going to worship him except those people whose names have been written in the book of life. Verse 9 is very intriguing because you remember I made my case before chapters 4 and 5 that the church will not be on planet earth at this time. Did you notice verse 9? If anyone has an ear, let him hear. What's left off from that verse that we saw in chapters 2 and 3? What the Spirit says to the churches. No spirit, no church in chapter 13, verse 9. I thought that was an interesting. So that finishes chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. But that's just the first beast. The second beast is the beast from the earth. Look at Revelation 13, 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that even he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Wow, what a passage. Here's another beast, another of the same kind. He is who we call the false prophet. We see him identified in chapter 16, verse 13, chapter 19, verse 20, and chapter 20, verse 10. He's the third person of the unholy or false trinity. He has horns, but no crown, which means he has authority, but he's not political. He's not a king. So when you couple that with the fact that he's got the character of a lamb, he is the religious aspect of the unholy trinity. That's why he's called the false prophet. He's going to lead a worldwide false apostate church. He's got the character of a lamb, but he's got the voice of a dragon. So his character, he's, the front that he's putting on is he comes as a religious leader, but his character really is like the dragon because he's another beast of the same kind. I, I don't think this is a coincidence, but you'll notice he doesn't want to be worshipped himself. He points to the Antichrist. This is the same as the third person of the Holy Trinity. The Holy Spirit never glorifies himself. His job is to glorify Jesus and to point people to Jesus. The false prophet doesn't point people to himself. He points them to the Antichrist. And so this man is a religious leader. He's not a political figure. He's got authority. He's 
seems like he's a lamb, but he's really a dragon. He only wants worship to the Antichrist. And did you notice how he performs miracles? He exercises all the authority of the first beast. He performs great signs. He makes fire come down from heaven. That's exactly what the two witnesses did. And he even duplicated giving life, like God gave life to the bodies of the two witnesses. This beast is able to give life to this image. Now, I don't know whether it's... he. It, I mean, my opinion is he's going to give life to this image. But some Bible commentators, some great students of the word say that's not possible, that it will appear to be alive, but it will not be. Here again, Satan is the prince of the power of this world, and I believe he has more power than we can imagine. He is not all powerful, but he is powerful. I would not be surprised if he could give life to this image. So he is duplicating the miracles of the two witnesses. The last thing that we see what he does here is he institutes strong economic measures. This is the part, you're all familiar with this, when it says 666. If you've seen an address, if you're looking at a house and it's 666 Elm Street, most people won't buy that house because of that number. And I think sometimes we get too carried away with that uh, because this is very clear. This is going to happen in the end times, in the last days, and it's going to be an economic hardship for people who are believers because they will not be able to buy and sell. This beast, the false prophet, will be granted power to give breath to the image of the beast. And that's why I think that's real life because he's granted that power. And that he causes everybody to receive a mark and you can't buy or sell unless you have the mark. And the mark is 666. You know, it's been kind of uh, strange over the years that I've, I've heard people say that they felt like the social security system was from Satan and and that there's a, a, a computer called the Beast in Belgium. And that's what happened when I was a kid. And, you know, it, it, had, it, it, it occupied an entire office building. Well, now you could probably fit uh, everybody's name or number in, on the world. All six billion people will probably fit in a pocket-sized calculator right now. So we really don't know how this is going to play out, but we believe this a whole lot more strongly than we did 25 or 50 years ago. Because it is no no strange thing to you and me that there are microchips that could be placed in your forehead or on your right hand. We put chips in our animals so we know where our animals are. This beast is going to institute strong economic measures that if you don't carry this mark, you can't buy or sell. And if you don't carry the mark, you will most likely starve to death. Well, what does 666 mean? We're not going to press this point too far because it's very, it's not for us to know really. Uh, And secondly, aren't you glad we won't be here? I mean, we'll be raptured. I don't plan on being here during this time. It's going to say a little bit later on, if you're a believer, don't take the mark of the beast. But let's just talk about what the mark is. You know what the number 666 is. It says it's the number of a man. Man's number is six because man doesn't measure up to God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. If God had a number, what would it be? 
it would be 777. Man falls far short of God. And so the number of man is 666. Man was created in six days. He was commanded to work for six days. A Hebrew slave couldn't be a slave for greater than six years. The land was formed for six six years and was supposed to let uh, let uh, let lay for a year. And so Satan's beast, man and Satan's beast, don't measure up to God. So his his whole plan is blasphemy and deception. And he's going to institute it where the whole world has to take his mark, identifying with him and his number, 666. I don't want to press that any further because we could speculate all day long. I remember that when I was in a worship service, uh, when, uh, when I was a teenager, this was probably around 1965, that in the morning worship service, we took out paper and pencil and threw, you know, A equals one, B equals two, C equals three. If you put the name Henry Kissinger, you get 666. So we determined in that worship service that Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist and that Pope John Paul VI, or Pope Paul VI, one of the two, I think it was Pope Paul VI, was the false prophet. Folks, I don't believe that for a minute. I do not believe, as some do, that the false prophet will be a pope. I don't believe that. I don't think we have any evidence of that. I don't think that we can know who the Antichrist is. I don't think it's important to know who the Antichrist is. First of all, we won't be here. And secondly, he will reveal himself in time, signing a peace treaty with Israel. And so I don't think it's important that we identify this man. I believe that it's most important that we know what he is up to, that we know he's energized by Satan, but to also know that power and authority is given and granted to him by an almighty, all-powerful, sovereign God. I want to introduce here, and I want you to remember what Dr. Quartz said about what Revelation is all about, that the book of Revelation is what is happening on earth while God is making it what he wants it to be. All of these circumstances are troubling, but God is on the throne. His purposes will be fulfilled. He is sovereign. In your life and in my life, many times circumstances seem like they are out of control and it seems like your life may be unraveling your finances, your relationship, your marriage, the relationship you have with your children, your spiritual life, your job. All that's going on in your life might seem to be coming apart at the seams, but God is in control. And all of those things is what's happening to you while God is making you what he wants you to be. Just like Revelation is what's happening on earth when God's making it what he wants us, what he wants it to be. So take that as a very strong application in your life today regarding circumstances because I think you'll agree with me the circumstances in chapters 12 and 13 are not very good but all of this is going on while God is doing exactly what he wants getting Israel ready for restoration pouring his wrath out on the gentiles 
letting Satan have center stage for a very short period until all of God's purposes are accomplished. Well, what do we do? What's the final application? Because you know this is going to be a hard time on planet Earth. But you also know that we have an anti-Christian system today. An anti-Christian system pervades our world and true believers must not be a part of it. I've got an assignment for you. I want you to read this because this is the application. I just gave you a great application about circumstances, but here's another wonderful application. So here's what I want you to do in your quiet time now. This anti-Christian system pervades our world and we must not be part of it. So read 1 John 2, 15 to 17. We're not we're we're in this world but we're not of this world. So don't you become part of this world system. Secondly, we must shun false worship. 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22. And thirdly, we must be found faithful to the Lord in these last days. 2 Timothy 3. That tune has been in my mind all day today. And may all who come behind us find us faithful. That is my prayer for myself and for you. And it's my challenge for myself and for you that we be found faithful. No matter what the circumstance, God is working in us and through us. So we must not be part of the world that is against God. We must not be caught up in idolatry, false worship, and we must be found faithful. So read those passages, 1 John 2, 15 to 17, 1 Corinthians 10, 14 to 22, and 2 Timothy 3, and you will get a blessing. So we've met the terrible trio, but now as the next lesson, I'm going to try to do three chapters in one lesson, 14, 15, and 16, because they go together. And we're going to see the Lamb, the 144,000. We're going to see the proclamation of the three angels. We're going to see the prelude to the bowl judgment, the reaping of the earth's harvest. We still have a long way to go. So I want you to be concerned, but challenged and encouraged as well, that no matter what the circumstances, God's in control. He's making you and he's making the earth what he wants it to be. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the word. We're thankful that you have encouraged us and challenged us in these two chapters. So Lord, we pray that even though we do not believe we'll be here for these events depicted in Revelation 12 and 13, we're here now with difficult circumstances and we pray that we would not be part of the wicked world that we are in and that we not be caught up in false worship and that we be found faithful. And we need you to challenge and encourage us and and drive us to the word and help us to cultivate our prayer life. Help us to grow and learn through adversity, making us the people that you want us to be. So we're encouraged, but concerned and challenged. And we pray that you would get the glory from all of this. Bring glory to yourself as you continue to work in and through us. And we'll praise you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.